that I um, really appreciate about doing this little chanting before I give a Dhamma talk is it um, it's a little ritual that whose purpose is to remind so the kind of talk that we do at the breakfast table or on the street corner is different than the kind of talk that happens in a context like this where people are bringing their attention their sincerity, their heart, their listening. And so when I do that chant, it's a reminder to me, remember, this is a special situation. This is not a situation for me to use this opportunity to talk about the things that I have all kinds of opinions about, though you may hear them. You know, it's a, it's a special time to wake up. It's a special time to reflect. And likewise, if, if anybody here is listening to somebody speak and you hear that chant, it's a, it's a, it's a reminder to, to listen in a particular way. So the, the instruction is, is not to focus all of your attention on me. The instruction is to focus 90% of your attention on your own internal somatic experience so that your attention is very deep inwardly focused. And when that's the case, then if you hear something that resonates, you will know because your whole body will tell you. And if you hear something that doesn't resonate, you will also know because your body will also tell you. Sometimes it gets a little tricky when there is a tightness of our body to be able to differentiate whether that is the result of something that just doesn't register or doesn't register, or whether what's happening is is that it's touching into something that needs investigating and it's painful. So discernment is needed. But for me, my request, whenever I am in a context like this, speaking like this, if I ever speak in a way that cuts across your deepest understanding of what the truth is, don't ignore that. Somehow find a way to come back to me and talk about it. This context is far too precious and special to take advantage of it in any kind of a way. And the only way that it works is if we have a mutual agreement from the onset about what everybody's responsibility is. With that being the case, then it's okay to proceed. If that's not the case, then we need to renegotiate. I wanted to talk this evening about craving. It's been up. Surf has been up. And I'm curious if it's been up for anybody else. And I laugh because it's probably up for everybody else. You know? Craving is one of these things that's a pretty um, deeply rooted experience that's endemic to all of us human beings before we have really seen clearly. And so, you know, we can look at the variety of things that we crave, you know, the kind of different manifestations of craving, how we experience that. So I don't know many of you, so I don't know your personal life stories or histories, but with the people in the front range, the against the stream folks in the front range, I know many of them very deeply. And I know some of their stories. 
you know, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, cigarettes, sex, this incredible craving, insatiable craving, and a deep-seated longing to be free from that, to not to be a slave of that kind of craving. And the heroic courage, patience, fortitude, and tears, as well as friendship that's required to be able to take note of that and to move out of that. To be able to see that when one is stuck in that kind of craving, that one is really a slave. That being a slave is no fun. And so I feel really heartened to hear about the recovery programs that are around and the friendship supports that are around and the sponsoring that are around, that people are in a genuine, wholehearted way touching the nature of this and opening up to the reality and extending a hand across the threshold to somebody who's been on the other side to say, listen, I know. Because I think that is the way to come clean of that kind of craving is with support, with clarity, with conviction, with understanding. It's not so easy or common that people can do that by themselves. Just with their own volition to decide, I'm done with this, and it's finished. One of the things that happens when we are able to make that step across that threshold and come out of those addictions of substance or sex or food, then we open up a whole other layer of craving. And we recognize that we replace one set of cravings for another set of cravings. And so we're not addicted to cigarettes or heroin, we're addicted to something else. And maybe that something else is a lot less destructive. But there still is this pattern of insatiable craving. And then many have the opportunity of of feeling a partnership with somebody, a kinship with somebody, feeling deeply in love with somebody and watching the way the mind can be totally obsessed with the possibility of spending time with this person and what they say and what they think and what they feel and what one should do to be with them or or what happened. And all of a sudden, the whole world turns into a, a tiny, tiny little scoop and the only thing that one can see is the possibility of spending time with this person. And the the fire of that, the burning of that, the longing of that, the unrelenting insatiability of that, where the contact with the person only satiates it temporarily. And then when they're gone, it comes again. That longing to be with the one that you love or care so deeply for, or who sees you, or who makes you feel okay. And in the culture that we're in, you know, everything around us tells us that if we follow that craving and we actually are able to connect with that person, then that is where happiness comes. And, you know, it's an open question, is that so? You know? Does it actually work like that? And certainly, friendships and intimacy and lovers have enormous possibility for tenderness and closeness and affection, learning, partnering. But is it actually possible that we can satisfy our longing through contact with another person? Check it out. 
Is it true in your experience? So we open up to the craving to be with, or the craving to be, you know, the longing to be a person, to be validated, to be seen, to be known, to have a place, to have some safety, to have some opportunity to do what one feels is in one's heart to do. And the various different ways that that expresses itself And the mind can be really focused that if we satisfy that, if we get what we need or want, or we have our wish list fulfilled, that's going to be where we feel okay. If we get the job we want, or become the person we want, or graduate from the program we want, if we get the security we want, if we are seen and validated, if people respect us, that's going to be okay. That's going to be where we can relax. And certainly, there's an enormous place for being validated and seen and living with respect and living with safety. I'm not saying this in order to dismiss the importance of that. But when we hold our deepest sense of longing or fulfillment onto something which inherently cannot satisfy, which inherently is going to come and then pass again. You know, we're up a creek without a paddle. You know, so there's craving for sensuality and sense objects and pleasure and experience and there's craving for being and becoming. And there's craving for non-being. Get me out of here. I don't want to know. I don't want to feel. I don't want to show up. I don't want to be present. Just get me out of here. And sometimes, the various other cravings that we are dealing with are expressions of just that. Get me out of here. I don't want to know. I don't want to feel. I don't want to be present. It hurts too much. And yet if we step back just a minute and look at all of these different forms of craving, and no matter the various different ways that they express themselves, and whether it's the craving for sensuality, the craving for being, the craving for non-being, you know, they have something very much in common. And what they have in common is the identification with me as a fixed separate entity that is somehow longing for fulfillment, either through getting or having or getting rid of. So the root of all of our longing is wrong seeing, wrong understanding, ignorance. That's the root. And however which way it goes can be different for different one of us depending on our own personality and conditioning and karmic predispositions and circumstance. But the root is the same. We hold ourselves to be separate and we seek to have fulfillment through obtaining or getting rid of something that we have. It was a very interesting experience. Um, there was a, an ordination on October 17th, and just before the ordination, the day before, um, a monk came from Germany who's a remarkable monk. His name is Venerable Analayo, and he's uh, a professor at Hamburg University and has written and published many books, including a book on the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And it's a It's a spectacular book to read if you're really into meditation because it's very, very detailed. And this particular monk is a gifted um, uh, scholar, and his specialty is scholarship amongst the different traditions. So his, his main interest is early Buddhism. And he has discovered that 
when you look at the scriptures, that the early Buddhist texts are similar in all of the different traditions. In many, many ways, many of the scriptures are parallel. There's many similarities. Anyway, he was giving a presentation uh, the day before the ordination, which I was, I was mesmerized by. I found it spellbinding. And then after the presentation, he invited, uh, there was a select group of people who were invited in to have a conversation. And it was, it was wonderful talking with him. And he was, he was lovely because it was just very friendly and easy to talk to and also very humble and very um, cognizant of the fact that for women sometimes it's not so easy for them to find their voice and very supportive of them speaking and letting them have the capacity to articulate it in their own way without having to say it better or say it more scholarly or say it, you know, somehow to do the thing about it. And I don't remember how the topic came up, but he was talking about a suba practice. Do you know what a suba practice is? A suba practice is the practice of looking at the unbeautiful nature of things. And classically, it's a, it's a recommendation that's given to people who are experiencing sexual desire. So the, a suba practice is to look at the unbeautiful nature of the body and to really see what the body is made out of. So when you look at you know bones and spleen and liver and, and colons and excrement and undigested food and saliva and snot and you know it's like you know it's maybe not maybe not so delightful you know <laughs> and you know but you see the thing is is that the the body is the way it is it's also not revolting or repulsive it just is the way that it is you know it's like we don't need to be grossed out by it but it's also probably you know when we're looking at a liver it's probably not something that um, we we'll get that uh, wound up about or jazzed up about you know <laughs> And so he was talking about this, and I did what I often do when people are saying things like that, was I said, Bunte, you know, I have heard this talk about this for a very long time. And I said, you know, I think this is something that women experience differently. I said, because, you know, from my experience, you know, the physical body is like tags along. It's like not what I'm interested in. But it's like, in spite of the fact that I'm not interested in the body, there's a feeling of an interest in closeness and tenderness and affection. And I said, you know, sometimes if you, could, you can dissect the body until the cows come home, but that's not the place where the longing is. And so that's not going to be the place where we're going to be able to unroot it. And he looked at me with big eyes. He'd never heard this before. And so he said, the chair, you know, he said, look at the chair. And he was trying to get into this conversation about, you know, how, how it would be the physical form of the chair. I said, it's not the physical form of the chair. It's the wanting to be close to the chair. And it's, it's the wanting to be close to the chair. And the physical form is the way that I can feel close to the chair. But it's not the form of the chair. It's different. So his eyes got really big. So I said, let me ask a question, and I can do the same. You know, how many people in this room can relate to what I'm saying? You know, that it's not the physical body that is actually the place where there's that kind of intense attraction. You know, who can relate to that? Okay. And so if the way that we are relating to sexual desire is through the physical form, then we're not actually touching the place where the deepest longing is, which is the sense of closeness, the sense of being intimate with another, the sense of being able to be touched or known or seen by another and what that feels like. And so I said, you know, in my experience, when dealing with that kind of intense longing, that longing, the super practice that I need is not of the body, but that the connection with that kind of contact is transitory. I need to bring the asuba practice to where it is that I'm stuck, to where it is that I'm longing for, if I'm longing to be seen or to be held or for some kind of emotional intimacy, 
I need to bring the ability to reflect on the impermanent, untransitory nature of the very thing that I so deeply want. And if what it is that I'm longing for is some sense of deep feeling of love, it's not the body that I need to dismantle. But what I need to do is to be able to connect with the love that is inside of me rather than to expect that through connecting with another is the way that I'm going to feel that which is already there inside of me. And so the weird thing is that when one has fallen deeply, madly, passionately in love, what one needs to do is to return to the love that you already are. that you have always been, that you will always be. The love that is there when everything falls away. And not expect it to be validated by the one outside. And so with that change... There's no demonizing it, asking it not to be there. There's a a willingness to see what's arising and to refocus one's attention to where the attention really needs to be focused in order to release that burning craving. That sense of being a slave to one's longings. How does that feel? What does that feel like? To know that one is out of control around the kind of longings that one has. And what does it feel like when that changes? when you are free. Now one of the things that's happened to me recently is is that I met a very um, auspicious nun. I had heard about her, I'd seen a picture about her, and I'd heard people's assessment of her attainments, which I listened to with a pinch of salt, because most people don't even know what these words mean, so they banter them around like, I don't know what... So I don't pay any attention. But I saw her face and I was interested in meeting her. And I heard a little bit about her own personal story. And her own personal story was this is that she was practicing in a very strong practice center for many years. And the teacher there had he, he, he reviews people's practice in a very rigorous and quite meticulous way. And I know of that teacher and know that he doesn't authorize people to teach unless they have very profound insight. And so she would come to the interviews and he said, you are eligible to teach, please. And she continued to stay in practice. And he came again and said, you know, again, you are quite eligible to teach, please. And she stayed in practice. And again, she came and he said, you are very eligible to teach, please. And she just stayed in practice. And then she came again and he said, please stay here and teach. And she fled to the mountains of her home country. So she was living as an alms mendicant wearing rag robes with no shelter or permanent abode, barefoot, for ten years in the mountains because she wanted to understand suffering and the cessation of suffering. And she was not going to allow any teacher's authorization of her 
to supersede her own understanding of what she needed to know for herself. And I watched her eat a meal. And I never in my life have ever seen anybody eat a meal like that. There was not a moment of distraction. There was not a moment of being pulled away from what it was that she was doing. She was not rushed or hurried, even though people were walking around her. I thought, this is really impressive. And so, you know, this whole business of going against the stream, and going against the stream of what? And to what level is one willing to go against the stream? You know? How important is it? What are you doing this for? And what is your sense of the outcome? You know, I looked at this nun and watched her. And I was gobsmacked. To see a person that was so still and so clear and so peaceful. And when I heard, you know, what she'd lived through, it's like, wow, incredible. So where she was living was like 40 degrees centigrade in the summertime and freezing in the wintertime, and she was barefoot. Do you know what it's like to walk on ice when you're barefoot? Do you know what it's like to walk on 115 degree heat when you're barefoot? It really hurts. And some of her supporters offered to get her shoes, and she said to them, How can I understand suffering and the cessation of suffering if my only response to that is to do something which is worldly? It's like, you've got to be joking. (laughs) But what she was up to was the ability to see where the suffering was arising in the body and the relation and the reaction to it in the mind and not confuse the two. So I heard she was sitting outside and it was 100 and... What's 40 degrees centigrade? 105 or 110? Hot. Really hot. And absolutely radiant. So she was sitting in this blistering heat with nothing on her head and absolutely radiant because she knew where the suffering was arising and how to be with it so that it was not causing any problem at all. What does it feel like to be so free that one does not need stuff and things and adventures, people, place, to be so utterly free that with huge range of hardship and isolation and change and instability and uncertainty, You can know exactly who you are and what you're doing and where your sense of inner freedom is. What would that be like? Her bag of possessions is this big. That's it. She's got no home. When I heard about her story, it puts the bar up rather high about going against the stream, what that means, what is possible in taking up practices 
and how certain ways of cultivating can lead to very profound realizations of freedom. So it's a valid question. What are we doing this for? Why are you here? Why did you come tonight? Why do you come any night? What do you really want? And is that something that you want, something that you're willing to do an hour a day? An hour a week? Or is it something you are willing to focus on and let it be your life priority? What do you really want? I can't answer that question for you. But what I can share is is that when we focus on things or stuff or positions or power or relationships as the thing out there that's going to be able to do it in here, we are on very fragile ground because it is constantly changing. So if the root of our longing is ignorance of not seeing things clearly, then it seems to follow that the cessation of longing is to begin to see things clearly. To be able to see that the physical sensations that we experience, the feelings that we experience, the thoughts and moods that we experience, the perceptions that we have, that they change. They don't belong to a permanent sense, a permanent person. They are dependent on different conditions arising. And so if the root of our craving is bound up with having certain experiences, then we are dependent on those experiences for our apparent sense of satisfaction. But we can see that that's what we're doing. Then it can help bring some shift in how we're relating to what's happening. And so in this way, we extend a hand to ourself across the threshold and begin to welcome ourselves back into ourself. Of who am I really? Where is my peace and happiness really? What can I rely on, really? What does freedom mean? How do I experience that? How do I practice to cultivate that? One of the greatest places where we have tremendous identification is the sense of I am. I am this. I am that. I'm not this. I'm not that. This isn't me. This is me. I don't do sugar. I do coffee. (laughs) And so we take whatever kind of preferences or characteristics that we have, which are blameless, And we solidify. And then we present our solidified sense as this is who I am. And then sometimes that lasts for a while and changes, and sometimes the change is welcome. 
And sometimes we're in situations where it's like all hell breaks loose and everything seems to be changing incredibly quickly and we don't know who we are at all. It's really hard to find out who I am or what I think or what I feel or what's going on or what do I need or what am I supposed to do. And so then there's this grasping for me, I. Where can I find myself? How can I locate myself? How can I position myself in all of this enormous shifting ground and changing territory? Where am I? And, you know, I've been talking to friends, and in the last, I don't know, year or so, there are a lot of people that are navigating such massive kinds of transitions and chaos and change. It's like, where am I? Who am I? You know, how do I hold together when everything seems to be falling apart? When it's all dissolving? So we've got to come back to what we know. We have to come back to the feeling in our body that we know. Being able to relax in our body. To let the feelings of confusion and disorientation and dislocation and disillusion, to let them be there. But that, the absence of those is not where we find ourselves. It's in some other way. It's not through clearing everything that we don't want to experience that we locate ourselves. It's being able to shift our relationship with what is happening to be able to relax in another refuge. where we're no longer identifying with the things that we're experiencing, the thoughts, the feelings, the moods, the perception, the sense of I am, I am, I am, I am not, I am not, I am not. And there's a movement into a relaxation, into this awareness which is open and receptive and knowing and allowing everything to be exactly as it is. The fear, the confusion, the chaos, the disillusion, the uncertainty, the sense of I, the not sense of I. There doesn't need to be any grasping as the river is flowing and doing what it does according to its own nature. But we can't get at non-grasping because it's a good idea. We have to get to non-grasping by seeing how incredibly painful grasping actually is. how much it burns, how obsessed the mind is when it fixates and it obsesses. And say, there has got to be more to life than this. So the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths starts with the first truth, which is that there is suffering. And I resented that. (laughs) You know, it's like, that is not my idea of a free-spirited person that who I am, you know? And when I would hear stories of people, you know, oftentimes people would talk about their experience of, you know, meditating or being a monastic, and, and often it would be something like, You know, I was a total basket case, and then I became a meditator, and things started to shift. And it was like, 
That wasn't me. That's not me. That's not my story. I was together. I had it together. And then I started meditating. (laughs) But I realized, you know, the truth of suffering is actually very humbling. And it's so deep. It actually takes a fair amount of capacity to open up to the level of pain that there is to open up to. And, you know, for me, you know, that was a strategy before I had the capacity to see the extent of the suffering that I was actually having to navigate, was just to say it didn't apply. But the truth of suffering is a truth which needs to be investigated, known, and seen for oneself. And the purpose of that is to understand the cause of suffering. To see the root of desire that is present. The root of one's longing that is driving this desire machine. To have, to be, to become, to get rid of, to not be. But the point of these two truths, the truth of suffering and the truth of the cause of suffering, culminates in the third truth, the cessation of suffering. This is not about being miserable. It's about being free. And not just free to choose what kind of ice cream you want and Baskin Robbins. Or what kind of clothes you want to wear. Or how you want to express yourself. Or the lifestyle you want to live. Or the freedom to know what you value and to live by that. Those are all important truths. But it's a freedom to not suffer. It's a freedom to be free from this slave to longing. Utterly, completely, totally free. Can you imagine? You know, one of the people that I've had contact with that was so impressive to me was Deepama. Have you ever heard of Deepama? One yes. Two yeses. Deepama was a woman who was born in Calcutta. No, she was born in Bangladesh and emigrated to Calcutta at the partition. And when she was um, 12 years old, which was the time that these things happened in India, she was betrothed. And married a man who was 25 years old and when she was 14 she went to go live in his family's house which was the custom at the time and her family um, trained her to be a good wife you know to clean the house and take care of the duties and all the rest of that but they didn't tell her anything about sex that was like forget that so her husband had to tell her And she was absolutely horrified. I mean, totally ashamed. She was mortified. And she lived in terror of him for a whole year. And gratefully, he was a noble and very kind-hearted, gentle man. And he just gave her the space that she needed, and eventually they fell in love and sorted these things out. But when when he, I think it was... uh, I don't know what. She she was living for two years by herself with the in-laws, and then she went and joined him in Burma. And, you know, they couldn't have any kids, which in India is like a catastrophe. So the family um, plotted to have him abandon her and found another woman for him to marry so that he could have a child, which was important for the family. So... Can, can you imagine what it would be like living in a family <laughs> while this is going on? I mean, it's like... 
Anyway, he, again, noble man, said, listen, you know, I didn't marry her for her capacity to bear children. I'm not going along with this, you know, so this is, this is not the deal. So eventually she did have a child, and the child died, and she was devastated because, you know, she was given the right to be a valid human being through being able to conceive and give birth to a child, and then the child died. I mean, for anybody... To have a child die is devastating. But in these circumstances, and she conceived another child, and the child was born and born healthy, and then another child was conceived, and that child also died. And so, you know, in a very short period of time, she lost two children, she lost her health, she lost her husband, because her husband collapsed and died totally unexpectedly because he was overburdened with his own work and having to care for her and having to look after the little one. So he just collapsed and died. And she had lost virtually everything that was important to her. You know? She was just devastated. But she had a really strong root for wanting to practice, for being interested in the meditation practice. And so she waved to a meditation center And her virtues were such that her mind was very concentrated. And so she went into a very deep concentration very quickly, and she was doing walking meditation and couldn't move, and she couldn't figure out why. And she looked down, and there was a dog that was hanging on to her calf. And, you know, dogs in Burma are like, you know, bad news. So she had to go get medical treatment and all the rest of that. So it took a while before she could come back to the retreat center but you see she was focused you know by the time she came to the retreat center she was really clear there was nothing in the world that was going to be the thing that was going to do it for her the only hope she sensed a way out was through meditation that was the only way that she could see that was going to be a road through what to her was like unenduring, insoluble suffering. And she had very profound insight very quickly and virtually overnight was transformed from being a very physically sick, frightened, emotionally dependent person to being somebody who was radiant, clear, luminous, confident, and much physically healthier. What did she see? What did she realize? What did she understand? What did she penetrate? You know, at the time that I met her, I had wanted to meet her for just about 10 years and set on this pilgrimage to go to Asia. And one of the motivations for going on that pilgrimage was to meet her. And so I, I got to Calcutta and I went to this room and I went into this room and there was a platform. You know, in India they do platforms quite a bit bigger than they do platforms here. So it's like you know, five feet high platform and I think there were monks on the platform and there were a few lay people sitting on the floor and there was this tiny little being wrapped in these white robes and I was just facing her back but she was just a few feet in front of me but the impact of her presence was so powerful it, I could feel it, you know. And, you know, I didn't know who that was but who was that? That was Deepama, you know. That was Deepama. And so her insight was very deep, very profound, very liberating. And her capacity with the kind of psychic powers was just extraordinary. She was able to do, she had attained all of the psychic powers. So she could um, remember past lives, she could be in different places at the same time, she could cook uh, food with just the energy in her hands. She could walk through walls. She could go fly in the sky. She could dive into the earth. I mean, it was like really far out, you know? But the quality about her that was the most tangible was her love. 
it was like being in this huge, vast, wide, open, endless ocean of love. And there was a sense that she totally saw you, every layer of you, and everything was welcome. And she kissed you and chant this blessing when you say goodbye. And it felt like you were just in this kind of bliss field of this cascade of love. And so one of the things that happens when we understand suffering and the end of suffering is we understand what love is. The magnitude of it, the depth of it, the breadth of it, the all-pervasive nature of it. We understand that that is in fact who we are when everything falls away. So the question is, what do you want? And what are you willing to give up or to do or to practice to support that? So I will leave this talk with you. And as I said at the beginning, I'll say at the end, it's really important that you do not believe a single word that I have said. What is important is is that you listen attentively, inwardly, to when your body relaxes in a deep understanding and agreement. And when your body closes as to say, this is not relevant, or this is not for me, or this is not my path. When your body contracts in a way that says, this is actually against the truth that I know for myself. And if you have experienced that this evening, I would very sincerely request you find a time to come and talk to me about that. Because unless you feel free and are committed to speaking to me about that, This is not a sacred space. It's something else. And that something else is not a something that I want to participate in or condone. So I leave it here, and maybe we can take a few minutes standing up break and then come back for questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.